read in a few moments from Exodus chapter 4. Before I do, welcome if you're visiting with us as well, if it's your first time. Really great uh, to see you and to have you with us. We're working through the book of Exodus. Some of you might be familiar with it. Some of you may never have read it. Some of you will have seen bits of films and will know bits of the story, I'm sure. But we're going to spend a few months working through the whole book of Exodus, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and trying to understand the big story of the book of Exodus, which we've seen so far, uh, is that God wants to draw his people out of slavery, in particular slavery to our sin, into his restful presence. He's drawing us out to draw us in. So far in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we saw right at the start in chapter 1, in the first few verses, that that is God's desire for humanity. God created us not to, not to endure all the suffering that we've been praying about, not to feel all the pain and the, and the loss and the, just the, the brutality it is to be human. That isn't why he created us. And all of us know that, right? Like we feel that. I'm sure all of us will come in this afternoon feeling the reality of living in a broken world, of living in a body that wrestles against sin. That isn't why God created us at all. God created us to enjoy his rest. In Genesis chapter 1, right at the start of the Bible, you see God create all that we see around us and everything he creates is good. And often we think that the pinnacle of his creation is, is humanity, but it isn't. His, his pinnacle, the thing that he's working towards is found on day 7 when he looks at his work and he rests. That is what we've been created for. Don't you long for that? Don't you long just to, just to live in peace? Oh, we've been crying out for it just now. We long for peace. All of us within us, whether you're a Christian or not, you long for peace and you might not be able to articulate it. But God has created you for to find rest, to find peace in his presence. We see that in the first few verses of the book of Exodus. We see just mirrors and shadows of the Genesis story in the first few verses. And then as we go on to the rest of chapter one, we see although that's what we've been created for, it slips through our fingers because of sin. Instead of finding ourselves in the restful presence of God, we find ourselves coming into this world, every single one of us, in slavery to sin, unable to break free of our shackles. And our slavery to sin is not just a problem now, it's an eternal problem that separates us from that thing that we desire, the restful presence of God. But then in chapter two, we see light breaking into the darkness. As God sees, right at the end of chapter 2, it says this, God sees his people in their affliction and he remembers his promise and he knew. Now, when God remembers, it isn't like you and I remember it. Oh, I remember, a, I, I remember kind of a birthday or I remember something that's God. No, when God remembers, he acts on what he remembers. It isn't just something that comes into his mind. It comes into his remembrance and he acts on it. God sees his people in their slavery. He sees us in our chains, in our slavery to sin. He sees us wrestling against the brokenness of of this world. He sees us, folks, coming into this building this afternoon, knowing what we've been contending against this week, knowing how our hearts break with the brokenness of this world, knowing how we've been wrestling against sin this week. He sees, he knows, and he remembers his promises for his people. That is great news. And in chapter 3 last week, Andy showed us how God's movement towards his people begins. We saw this amazing picture. You might know the story of of the burning bush. Moses coming into the presence of God. Wow. 
And even more stunning, God revealing himself. Telling Moses who he is. And what he says that he is, or who he says that he is, is I am. And our mind's like, you're what? Finish this, no, I, I am. I am supreme. I am, when you think of love, I am, I am that in all, the, all its perfection. When you think of the peace that we long for, I am that in all of its, I am all of the goodness that you long for in all of its entirety, in all of its perfection. I am. And he sets Moses off on this mission. He says, I want you to go, go back to Egypt. He spent some time out of Egypt, go back to Egypt. And I want you to start the liberation, start this, this act of freedom. I want to bring my people out of slavery. And I want you to be the person who kicks it off. That's where we're up to in chapter three. And in chapter four, we pick up where this conversation is left off. Moses is still here in the presence of God, conversing with God. Like, let's not just run past that. Like, that's incredible. He's in the presence of God, having a conversation with God. I'm going to pick it up in a minute. But before we do, I just, I just want to make sure that we don't miss how central God is to the Exodus story. Like the Exodus story is about God freeing humanity. It's about God seeing us in our slavery to sin and him drawing. That is what it's about. And we are central to the story. But right bang center of the story is God. This is about him. It's about his glory. We need to see the goal for humanity, folks, isn't freedom from sin. Like that is part of That's what God wants for us. But the ultimate goal is that we will be free from our sin to worship God. That is what God has created us for. To worship him. You see hints of it already in chapter 3. That God is freeing his people. Not so that they can just be free and do what they want. He frees his people to worship him. We're going to see it again in chapter 4. God frees his people to worship him. That is the ultimate purpose for humanity. Not just to be free from our shackles and the brokenness of the world. But to be free to worship God. God desires for our worship. And if we're wondering what that is, here's a, here's a quick, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, explanation, did you say? No, explanation, let's go with that. Karis put it up and the word will come to me. Definition, there we go. Here's a quick definition of what worship is. This is John Piper, who's a pastor and author over in the States. True worship is a valuing or treasuring of God above all things. That's what it is to worship. It's to treasure or to value God above anything else and God desires that he desires us to worship him he desires us to walk in obedience to him to serve him he desires for us to sacrifice in every area of our lives as a way of showing that we value him and treasure him above all things that is what he has created us for to worship him and whether you're a Christian or not this resonates with you because you you worship all of us worship. You know, might not worship God, but you worship. In a book in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, it says that we all worship. We either worship the creator or we worship created things, but we all worship. John Calvin, one of the greatest theological minds of the last 500 years, says our hearts are like perpetual idol factories. Like they're continuing, make, continually making idols, presenting things in front of us for us to worship. So if it's not God that we're worshipping, it's someone else. Someone is being worshipped, either God or something that has been created. It is like amazing here. She'll turn up eventually. Someone help her out. 
No, it's right. You can crawl under the table if you want. Do whatever you want. Very easy. There we go. It's fine. Um, we need some signs. Let's get some signs. There is a tiny toilet sign there, but you're never going to see that either. Here we go. We all worship. That's what we do. We're wired to worship. Now here's the question. Why would we want to worship God? We all worship something. So what is it about God that, that really draws us to worship him? What is it about God that has him stand above everything else? What is it about him that, that separates him from everything else that our hearts will present in front of us that desire our worship? We're going to see it in Exodus chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Brace yourselves, guys. There is some interesting stuff in here, right? Just park it for a minute. I know you're going to have loads of questions. Park it, but follow along with you. This is a beautiful, wonderful narrative. There's a lot in there. It's going to take us a few minutes. Well, let's go. Exodus chapter 4. Moses answered. Remember, he's having this conversation with God. Moses answered, but behold... They will not believe me. So God has, has told Moses to go back to, to Israel, to tell them that he's bringing about this liberation, that he wants to take them out of Egypt. And he's having doubts. He says, behold, they will not believe me. They won't listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. They may believe that the Lord, the God, their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe either these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and of talk. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. For I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. 
Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint, that's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel and spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. I need to pray. Quickly, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We believe that it is true. We believe that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray, Holy Spirit, come and do work in our hearts. There's a lot in here. We need your help. Lead us towards truth, we pray. Help us to love Jesus more. Help us to see ourselves for who we are. And to hold on to Jesus for all he has done. We ask these things in his name. Amen. So with all the gods, with all the idols, with all the things that are created, that are set before us, all the things that our hearts create for us to worship, why worship God? Why not worship those things? The Bible shows us, and this passage shows us, and we're going to see, we can worship God because he, folks, is the only one who is worthy of it. He's the only one who is worthy of our worship. And remember, our definition, true worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. God is the only one, the only one who is worthy of us treasuring and valuing above all things. He's the only one who is worthy of our worship. In verses 1 to 9 of chapter for we see God call Moses to go. He sends him on his mission. Go back to Egypt. Bring out my people. You're going to bring about this liberation. And that is an act of worship for Moses. It's him walking in obedience to God's commands. If you know the story of Moses, he was raised up in Egypt. He leaves, he flees there because he murders an Egyptian. He doesn't want to go back. Like he's fearful of going back, but God says, go back. I want him to go back. I want him to lead this liberation. So this is an act of worship for Moses. It's an act of obedience. But in verse 1, we see him doubt. We see him have a wobble. He comes to God and he says, if I go back and tell them that I've met you on the mountain, if I go back and tell them that you want them to be free from, from Egypt, they're, just, they're not going to believe me. Like he has this struggle of faith. And I love, like, I love the tenderness of God in this moment. Like, bear in mind what Moses has just experienced. Like, he's just... He's just met God in this kind of incredible scene with a burning bush. He's the first one in all of human history to have God be revealed to him. The first one ever for God to share his name with him. He is in the presence of God. And yet he has the audacity to say, no thanks God, I'm not going. Like that's just bonkers. He's in the presence of God and yet he is disobeying God to his face. And yet I love the tender heartedness of God. And that God comes and says, okay, I'm going to help you out. 
Like if I was God, I'd be like, I'm burning you up with the tree and I'm going to start with someone else. Like don't talk back to me. But that isn't the God that we're dealing with. God in his mercy says, okay, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give you three signs, three proofs that show why I'm worthy of of your obedience, Moses, and why I'm worthy of everyone's obedience. And the three signs that he uses here, the the snake, the the hand and the cloak, the Nile tenant of blood, he is choosing things deliberately here. God wants to show his absolute supremacy against any other desire, any other power, any other idol that our heart can conjure up. Because the reality is all of us will bring up idols in our own hearts. We will put things in front of us, even if we know and even if we believe that God is the one who we want to value and treasure more than anything else. We contend against idols which say, actually, your money is more valuable. You should treasure, treasure your health more than you treasure God. Value sex more than you, you value God. Value your house. All of these different things come to us and compete for our attention and compete for our worship. And so God chooses three things that show his absolute supremacy over everything. And so we're in no doubt that he and he alone is worthy of our worship. So in verse 2, we see this, this first miracle that he brings with the, the staff and the snake. The staff turning into the snake as uh, Moses picks it up. Now, we won't know this, but back in Egypt, uh, the snake was a symbol of power. So you'd see the snake everywhere on um, kind of buildings of power. And we said a few weeks ago that, that even the, the, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, had a snake on his, on his crown. It was a sign of sovereignty. It was the sign that was given to Amun-Ra, who was the god of gods. Like his symbol was the snake. Like he was the god above every other god. Whenever you saw a snake in Egypt, automatically you would think of the gods of Egypt. And so in what God does in this first miracle here, he has shown Moses and he wants Moses to show all of those who will see these miracles that he has complete dominion, complete supremacy over all of the powers that are represented in Egypt. And if you remember, whenever we read Egypt in this this context, we have to think of the powers of evil, the powers that stand against God. And so God comes to Moses and says, okay, what's that in your hand? And Moses is carrying like a shepherd's staff. And he says, it's a staff. He says, okay, throw it on the ground. Moses throws the staff on the ground and it turns into a snake. And just like all of us would do, Moses runs away scared from the snake. God says, pick it up by the tail. Now I've watched enough Discovery Channel and Channel 5 documentaries to know you don't pick snakes up by the tail. Because if you pick it up by the tail, what's it going to do? Bite you. God says, pick it up by the tail. Moses, for a change, does what he's told and picks it up and turns back into a staff. God has shown in this miracle that he has complete supremacy over the powers of evil that are represented in the serpent. Now, the staff, just remember the staff. The staff's going to pop up again. You know in films where you see props just just popping up every now and again, like say like the DeLorean, just kind of, kind of in Back to the Future, it's always there, or the um, Harry Potter kind of, Deathly Hallows kind of pops up in different scenes. It's that prop that kind of you see every now and again through the story. The staff is that prop in the book of Exodus. It's going to pop up again and again, and it's important. Whenever we see the staff, whenever we see Moses holding the staff, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder for him and it's a reminder for us of God's presence. But it's also a reminder of how God works. 
God works out his purposes with divine authority and human humility. With divine authority and with human humility through you and I. So picture Pharaoh and picture Moses. Pharaoh would stand with a golden scepter. Moses is standing with a shepherd's crook. Moses leans and depends on God. Pharaoh leans and depends on his own strength and own own power. Just keep in mind the staff, it's going to come up again. It's going to be a reminder that God is present with Moses. God is present with his people. And that God's people need to lean on him and depend on him. So the first miracle we see is the staff and the snake. And then in verse 6, we see another strange episode. God says, okay, if they don't believe you when you kind of show them this miracle with the staff and the snake, take your hand and place it inside your cloak. Now Moses, it seems, is a healthy guy beforehand. He puts his hand in the cloak and as he brings his hand out, it's covered in leprosy. Now leprosy isn't uh, the same for us as it would have been for them back then. Leprosy can be cured now. And it's you know, not a particularly serious disease. It can be, but there are cures for it. But in Egypt, it was not only rife, but it was thought to be incurable. And it would kill a lot of people, if not definitely shorten your life expectancy. God says, put your hand in your cloak. It comes out with leprosy. He says, okay, put your hand back in, bring it out again. And this time it comes out and it's gone, it's healed. What is God showing here? It's less about God's power to heal, although that is true. We do believe that God can heal. This miracle is more about God's authority to give life, to regenerate. He's shown in the staff and the snake that he is supreme over the powers of evil. And now he's shown that he is supreme over life and death. See, in Egypt, people would worship people. Like if they wanted to, to enjoy life, they would go and worship Pharaoh or worship other people around them. And they would try and extract life from one another. And we might think that's primitive, but we do exactly the same. We depend on each other. We think that we can live the fullest life that we can by by uh, just enjoying each other's company or tapping into the things that this world gives us. And that's never going to happen. As our creator, life is God's give, gift to give, both physically and spiritually. So we see in the first miracle that God is supreme over the powers of evil. And then we see he's supreme over life and death. And here in this third miracle, we see that he's supreme over culture, society, and all the powers in the world that we will bow down to in fear. In verse 9, he says, okay, if they don't believe you with these first two miracles, take some water from the Nile and pour it out onto dry land. And as he pours it out, it turns into blood. Now in Egypt, the Nile, the river Nile, was... Um, really the heartbeat of the economy and the wealth of that country. It was also the living manifestation of another god, a god called Happy or Hapi. It was the source of strength and prosperity for Egyptians. So to destroy the Nile was to destroy Egypt, to destroy their culture, their society. My goodness, do we need to hear this today? God is showing Moses and he's showing us that there is no superpower in this world. There's no amount of wealth, there's no army, there's no culture or system or society that stands above and over God. God is supreme over every culture, every society, every power in this world that will force us to bow down in fear. And we need to hold on to that truth, folks, for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine this week. 
the powers of evil, the idols in this world, human governments, cultural movements, they are all powerful, but they are all inferior to God. And these three signs that we read in uh, verses 1 to 9, in these three signs, God is pitting himself against these powers, and in each one, he is showing his supremacy. And as he shows us his supremacy, as he shows us that he is better than all of these things, he is calling us to worship him. He is calling us to value him and to treasure him above all things, above the desires of our heart and sin, above the places in the world that we will seek out life, above the world and the culture and the society that we live in. He wants us to value and to treasure him more than those things. And in saying that, he's not trying to enslave us. God calling us to worship him is not enslaving, he's freeing us. God desiring our worship of him is him freeing us from the oppressive regimes that we find in our heart and in our world. And you know what it is to chase after idols, right? If you worship sex, you know that that is crushing and exhausting. Because it might bring pleasure for a while, but eventually it runs out. Worship of God is not like that. If you worship money, you know that that, that idol, that, that worship is crushing and exhausting because you will never have enough. Worship of God is not like that. It is freeing, it is liberating. If you worship people, the desire for relationships, You'll know that that is exhausting. It is crushing. It will never give you what you want because people will fail you, but God will never fail you. Worship of God always leads to freedom and that is why he calls us into it. These three miracles, God is teaching Moses. He's teaching us what kind of God he is and he wants us to believe. I don't know whether you picked up as we read through. It was a long chapter, but belief and believe was a word that kept on being repeated. God wants us to believe that he is who he says he is, that he has done what he said he's done and that he will do what he says he will do. He wants us to believe. He gives these three miracles to help ground that belief for Moses and for those who he's going to show them to. And the result, Moses eventually goes, he shows these miracles to Aaron, his brother. He goes and shows them to the, the leaders in Israel. And the result, if you flick towards the end of the passage, in verses 31, Verse 31 is that the people believe. Chapter 4, verse 31, let me read it. The people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. God's sovereign plan is to free his people so that they can worship him. And that is what happens. Moses goes and he shows these miracles. He says, God is going to lead you out. Look at what he can do. Look at his power. And the result is belief in verse 31. But it isn't just belief. Look at what happens at the end. They bow their heads and they worship. We shouldn't be surprised. Moses reenacts the miracles. He shows them the three miracles and they are convinced by his power, but not just convinced by his power. There's something else beautifully tucked in in verse 31. They heard what what God had done. They've seen what what God has done in terms of the miracles. And then in verse 31, they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and seen their affliction. We would interpret that sentence as this. They had seen that the Lord had pastored his people and seen their affliction. They see the pastoral heart of God. It is as if we would see as one of the elders of our church coming and, and spending time with you. 
seeing the struggle that you're in, seeing the affliction that you're in, seeing the pain that you're in as you contend against sin and the brokenness of the world. And it's as if one of the elders of the church comes and just sits alongside you and listens to you and sees you in your pain and puts the kettle on and puts their arm around your shoulder and comforts you in your pain. That's what, that's what Israel experienced. It isn't just the power of God that convinces them. It is the love of God that convinces them. God sees them in their affliction. He pastors them. And the result is they bow their heads and they worship. Now, if that's all that was in chapter four, it would make a nice, neat sermon. We could close our Bibles, have communion and move on. But it's not. There's some interesting things in there that we have to address. I'm going to rewind a bit, flick back your page, if you turn the page. After verse uh, 9, after these miracles are shown to Moses, God shows his power. Remember who this is. This is God, right? The creator of the universe. Moses is there in the presence of God. He's already said to God, I'm not the right guy once. In verse 10, he does it again. God has shown him his power. He's shown him his miraculous supremacy, his authority. And Moses has the audacity in verse 10 to say, oh, do you know what? I'm not the right guy. I can't speak. I'm not eloquent with words. I'm not confident. I'm not the right guy, God. And so God in verse 11 and 12 says, Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Go, I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what you shall speak. God is saying to Moses, Moses, it isn't about you. It isn't about your strength or your ability. Ultimately, remember, this is about me. And it's about worship of me. Don't worry, I'm going to work for you. I'm the strength here, not you. But in verse 13, he does it again. Moses comes back and he's like, I still don't think you've got the right guy. And in verse 14, he hears words that you never want to hear from God. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Ouch. In the next few verses, God in his mercy says, okay, Aaron can go with you. If you're worried about speaking, Aaron can be your mouthpiece, but you're still going, Moses. You're not getting out of this. You're still going. See, God isn't just interested in Israel and his people worshiping him. He wants Moses to worship him too. But right now in this moment in chapter four, Moses' heart is captivated by something else. Some commentators, theologians who kind of work through this passage, look at Moses and see his three um, kind of attempts to wriggle out of, of this mission that God's given him. They, they applaud Moses and they say, oh, he's just kind of being humble. He's seeing how great God is and he's like, I'm not worthy, God. I'm not the right guy because I'm not worthy. That isn't what's going on at all. In fact, it's, the complete opposite. Moses here is thinking too highly of himself, if anything. Look at verse 24 to 26. I'm going to read it again because it's so spectacular. So Moses is on his way with his family. His wife, Zipporah, his two sons. They're on their way back to Egypt. So at least they go. On their way, they're at a lodging place. The Lord meets him and sought to put Moses to death. Then Zipporah, Moses' wife, takes a flint, cuts off her son's foreskin and touches Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. God let Moses alone. 
It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now we read that and all of us collectively say, what on earth? What is that about? Well, let me try and unpack it. This all starts back in Genesis chapter 21, verse 4. God comes to Abraham hundreds of years before Moses and says to Abraham, you and all of your descendants, all of your sons, I want them to be circumcised. And now for us, we're like, oh, that just feels a little bit awkward, a little bit culturally for them, it made sense. But there was something deeper going on as God called for this act of obedience. He said, for all the sons to be circumcised on the eighth day. How old is he? He's past it, he's fine. He's a few weeks along, so he survives, that's fine. But on the eighth day, the boys will be circumcised. And this was significant. It was a sign that you were part of God's promised people. Circumcision was an act of cleanliness. It was something that set God's people apart. You'll have heard that God calls his people to be holy. He wants them to, to be different to every other nation that is there. He wants them to act differently, to function differently. And circumcision was a sign that they were different. It was a sign of the promise that God had given to his people for them to multiply across the earth, for them to be his people and to be ultimately brought into his peaceful presence. And it was a command given to the fathers and mothers to circumcise their children. And clearly, Moses hadn't done it. He hadn't circumcised his son. And so God, because of Moses' disobedience, moves against him. It says that God went to kill him. Now this odd little episode, as strange as it might sound, gives us a really helpful insight into Moses' heart. See, Moses' problem isn't that he assumes too less of himself, that he's, that he's being humble, I'm not good enough. That isn't his problem. His problem is that he assumes too little of God. For him not to circumcise his son was an act of sinful pride. Moses had a little regard for the holiness of God and the commands of God. God told him what to do. He ignored it and chose his own way. And so do all of we. We all fall into the same trap as Moses. So we can point to Moses and say, oh, come on, there's quite a simple thing that you have to do, like forgetting to circumcise your son. Like that's, come on. Folks, in all manner of ways and hundreds of ways, every week we do the same thing. God tells us what to do. We ignore his commands and we choose our own way. Folks, God desires our worship. Problem is, sin blinds us and deceives us into thinking God isn't who he says he is. He's not actually as holy as he says he is. He's not actually that bothered about our sin as he says he is. He's not really going to judge sin like he says he will. And so because we assume so little of God, we choose sinful pride over worship and we indulge in sin and we take that extra step where we maybe shouldn't because we don't think God's really going to come down and, and pour out his wrath on sinners. The stark reality, look down with me again at the verse. The stark reality of chapter 4, verse 24, is that the penalty for our sin is death. But the beauty of verse 25 is that God has provided a way out. Moses' salvation is found through the blood of his son. And our salvation is found through the blood of God's son. Listen to this from Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Karis will pop it up for us. The wages, 
The payment, the result of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The right and fair and just result of our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion against God is death. But the free gift of God is eternal right eternal life through the shed blood of his son Jesus if you've read much of the Bible you'll know that blood is a theme that just flows right the way through it's especially true in Exodus and if you read blood in the Bible connect it with life like if we didn't have blood we'd be dead right blood is a sign of life and at the cross as Jesus' blood was shed His perfect life was exchanged for our corrupted, sinful life. As Jesus dies in our place, he suffers the judgment for our sin. He was perfect. There was no sin to be found in him. And yet in love for his brothers and sisters, for the children of God, he exchanges his perfect life for our sinful death. And the Bible describes Jesus' death like a fountain. A fountain under which sinners stand and we are cleansed from our sin as the blood of Christ covers us. And we are cleansed from all of our guilt. That is what the cross does for us. As Jesus hangs and suffers and dies on the cross. He is the perfect human but he is also fully God. And the blood that he sheds has the power to remove our sin. To forgive us of our sin. To redeem us back into the family of God. To remove all of the guilt and shame that we feel when we engage and we indulge in sin. That is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is poured on every single child of God. Sin keeps us from worship. So God in his mercy has made a way. Just like he did with Moses' son, he gave his son and shed his blood for us so that we could come and worship God, free from our slavery to sin, forgiven of our sin, washed clean of our sin, not guilty of our sin, cleansed from our sin. The story of Exodus chapter 4, folks, is the story of God making a way for his people to worship. That's what this is about. God wants us to worship him. He's shown why he is the one that we should worship, why he is worthy of our value and worthy of us treasuring him more than anyone else. And he has made a way for us to worship. As we close, let me just give us four ways that we can put this into practice this week. What does it look like for us to worship God? To be who God has created us to be? Well, firstly, it starts with believing. If you're not a Christian, you need to believe that God is who he says he is. That he is the great I am. That he is love and peace and mercy and justice and forgiveness and faithfulness and grace and all of those things in all of their perfection. He is everything that your heart longs for and desires for in all of its perfection. He is the one that you need and you need to believe that. And you need to also believe that your situation outside of God is as bad as the Bible says it is. That you need salvation. And you also need to believe that he has done all that is necessary to give it to you. Through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. First, we believe. Secondly, we need to have a right vision of God. Moses struggled with this. Like he just couldn't see God for who he was. God is supreme. God is holy. God is the ultimate authority. 
We need to approach God rightly. We need to approach him with a holy fear, knowing that we have no business to be in his presence, except for that we are covered with the blood of his son. That is the only reason that we can be welcomed into the presence of God. We need to have a right vision of God. Thirdly, we need to worship him. There's no point just talking about it. There's no point planning for it. We need to worship God. We need to treasure him. We need to value him. And primarily that that looks like walking in obedience. Abraham knew what he had to do and he didn't do it. Actually knowing God's word, what we have to do and what we shouldn't do. And so often we don't do it. And so an act of worship is actually to do what God has called us to do. To walk in the ways that he has called us into. So let's do that this week. And how else can we show that we are valuing or treasuring God above all things? How can we do that as we're walking around the home? The the things that we sing, the things that we read, the the things that we apply our resources to, our time. How can we show that we value and treasure God above all things this week? We need to figure those things out, put them into practice, worship Him. And finally, as we go, as we live this life of worship, we need to hold on to the signs that God has given us as a reminder of his promises to us. Every time Moses picked up that staff, he'd have been reminded of that crazy time it turned into a snake, (laughs) hoping it wouldn't happen again. He's reminded of God's power. The staff's going to come up again and again as you work through Exodus. Every time he holds onto the staff, he's reminded of God's promise to be with him, never to leave him, that God's power is going to work through him. You see it twice in chapter four. God reminds him, take the staff with you, Moses. Take the staff. As he goes, he goes with a reminder of God's promise to be with him. What for us, folks? What are the signs that we have? What are the tangible signs that we have as a reminder of God's promises to us? Promises to save us, to cleanse us from our sin. Well, we're given baptism and we're given this meal. The Lord's Supper. Moses had his staff as a tangible reminder of the power of God. We have bread and we have wine. We're going to take this meal, folks, as the last point of our application here. As a reminder. As a reminder of what we've been called into. A life of worship. And as a reminder of the promise of God to cleanse his people. To save his people to bring us into his eternal presence.